the presenting sponsor of On Education is Participate. As longtime proponents of social learning and cross-cultural community building, Participate invites you to explore virtual exchange and student leadership as Qatar Foundation International works to build meaningful connections to the Arab world. To become a member of QFI's robust community of educators, visit participate.com slash oneducation. It's it seems like the one night where you would think that you could like bring people together and thank your all of your teachers for doing all of the things that they have done and are will, are going to be willing to do this fall. Welcome to On Education, part of the On Podcast Media Network. My name is Mike Washburn. And I'm Glenn Irvin. Friends, we have an awesome pod for you today. We will discuss the President's 4th of July speech, the ways that online teaching should be different from face-to-face, and our guests this week are Jennifer Casa Todd and Michael Hernandez. Guests. Plural. Two guests. Fantastic guests. It's exciting. It's exciting times. Yes. Hey, um, speaking of, well... Exciting times. You were in North Dakota. Is North Dakota exciting? It must have been. <laughs> it, it's where my in-laws live. I wouldn't say that North Dakota is <laughs> exciting. North Dakota is, is my punching bag, so I'm just, you know, giving it to I wouldn't say them. it's an exciting place, but it it's is totally uh, definitely a uh, beautiful prairie land yes. with not very many people. That's a good way to be able to describe it with lots of farming land. It kind of reminds me of my farming simulator game. It's actually my farming <laughs> simulator game in real life. It is the equivalent of it. So North, um, North yes. Dakota population Glenn's parents. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's not my parents, my in-laws, but yes. <laughs> but my in-laws live there and um, obviously visiting them with my kids. And we had 4th of July and their fireworks uh, there that you could just basically... Uh, fire anything you want into the sky, because uh, everything everything is legal. Um, so it it turned out to be a good fireworks show that the town had in Jamestown, North Dakota, and then also that we were able to put on ourselves because my goodness, you can buy some things that uh, should probably be not be <laughs> used by anyone that doesn't have a pyrotechnics uh, background. But everyday humans are allowed to blow these things up on, and during the Fourth of July holiday. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> Tons of fireworks. Yes, um, yes. So, so you had a good time. You you got to relax. Hopefully, yes. Yeah, yeah. It was a fantastic uh, time. My in laws are amazing. Um, like I said, <laughs> I've made the comment that I, I I enjoy them at times more than I enjoy my parents. So. <laughs> and that's probably not a good thing, but it's <laughs> it's the oh, truth. Boy. <laughs> but your father in law plays video games with you and your kids, right? That's yes. that's the one who plays those. So that's yes. like a, a really cool connection that you have with him. I, I yes. think that's awesome. Yeah. My father-in-law is amazing. Is probably the the strangest uh, grandfather that anyone could have. He he plays more video games than my own kids do, <laughs> way more than I do. And and he's an expert in many 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 games, <laughs> first-person awesome. shooters all the way to farming games. <laughs> so so I had the week off um, yes. last week, and as predicted, I did not disconnect. Um, in fact, I ended up spending the better part of probably two days worth of time working including mm. pumping out all the rest of the minecraft education edition podcast so mm. um they will trickle out over the next two months or so i guess um but there are i, I basically um pumped out 
four podcasts uh, over the week. Um, yeah. Do, taking care still, of all the interviews and the, yep. the rough edges and all of those spots and getting them all edited so that it was all done because it had to all be done by the end of June. Mm. And I also like for real, for real, finally launched my streaming channel. So I did a lot of streaming. And I, I saw uh, you on, on Twitch all the time. Yes. You're on there for hours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably too much time to be fair. Um, but it was a lot of fun. And I, I do have a bit of an announcement, if you can give me a second, because something sure. really, really cool is happening. Um, and this isn't just related to Twitch. In fact, it's less related to Twitch than it is, I think, to just me and, and something I uh, have had an idea for for a while. Uh, and that's that I've um, signed a partnership with a company called Nodecraft. They're a Minecraft server company. Um, and they're uh, giving me access to two servers, uh, a uh, survival server and a creative server. And I am going to open it up for free to educators. Frankly, anyone who wants to come and play on these servers um, mm. can and should. Um, and it will give educators a safe space to kind of learn and create and enjoy each other's company and play together. And um, I'm optimistic that as I grow my streaming channel and as we grow um, the Participate streaming channel, maybe this becomes a place uh, where all of those folks, um, all of my worlds colliding on a Minecraft server hmm. um, so that everyone can learn from each other and play together. Um, so that's where I will probably, once they're all up and running, that's where I'll spend most of my streaming time. Um, and, and building time is on my Minecraft servers that I'm rolling out. So super excited about that. It's not going to be, um, you know, right away that those servers are going to launch, even though I have access to them right now. Um, but we will get them rolling and you'll know, trust me, you'll know when they're ready. Um, cause we'll make it a big deal and we'll, uh, we'll have some fun. Um, I have not watched Hamilton yet, and actually, I think I just learned that you haven't watched it either, but I wanted to mention it, uh, because all of our teammates are just hype central about Hamilton coming mm -hmm. out, uh, and, and I think I'll, I, I, should I share it online on the podcast? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you my Disney Plus channel uh, account, just in case you want to watch <laughs> it, but I, uh, I'm going to try to watch it, but uh, I love that it's, um, it's out and online, uh, and it... Uh, it's interesting and really interesting the conversations about Hamilton that um, people have been having just about the narratives and stuff like that in this kind of time of um, social reckoning that we're facing. I keep using that word. I think it's appropriate um, to talk about like the narrative of Alexander Hamilton and in particular George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Um, super, super interesting time for Hamilton to come out and everyone to get a chance to watch it. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, and I, what's funny about Hamilton, if all my Schoology peeps know know this, um, a big part of our opening number of we did this uh, musical for Schoology Next is a big conference of Schoologies, and we did myself and uh, Jared Lopatin uh, did a musical. We our first one that we did. Um, and our opening number was the Alexander Hamilton opening number, this, the song. And what was funny about it, Mike, is I had actually never even heard that song. <laughs> 
I had never heard it. I had never even heard of Hamilton until then. But Jared introduced me to it, and I got to listen to the the actual real song many, many times uh, to learn the rhythms and the obviously the tunes of the song. And then we ended up uh, making a parody of it uh, with Gamify with Schoology was our opening number, and the obviously the musical is a ginormous, extraordinary hit. Um, and then putting it out on Disney Plus has also been an extraordinary big hit. And since I haven't watched it, I'm not going to be engaged in the conversation. There's a lot of conversations going on on whether or not it's a historically accurate account or whether it should be a historically accurate account, whether we should be enjoying it or not or whatever it might be, uh, or for the reasons we should be or should not be enjoying the the musical. Sure. I will I will watch it. Because uh, I'm kind of interested in it because I'm not usually a musical kind of person as far as enjoying that. But I think it'll be interesting. I actually enjoyed that song, uh, the the opening song. So I'm sure that the entire thing is is amazing. Um, and then maybe I'll have a better opinion you know, to be able to share as far as like what I actually thought of the musical itself. As far as the historical context and whatever it might be, I'll leave that to the other experts, the other <laughs> pundits out there. So you do, though, have, I think, some opinions on uh, President Trump's speech oh uh, from the 4th of July. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just a disaster. <laughs> I mean, it was already going to be a disaster as far as him. Uh, but if you've never been to um, Mount Rushmore, yeah, if any, I, I last it, a few episodes ago, probably last summer, actually, um, I described how South Dakota was a really amazing, beautiful state. And we went um, and we visited Mount Rushmore, among other things. And you thought it was great. The Badlands. And it's a beautiful place. But let me tell you about this beautiful – one thing about this beautiful place. The the route to get to Mount Rushmore and to leave Mount Rushmore are these windy, beautiful – mountainous roads you wouldn't think so and i remember i just describing it to you people would think that south dakota is as flat plains whatever it might be and it's rugged uh rocky mountains uh, pine trees and then obviously the mount rushmore uh, monument and i knew with thirty thousand people coming to that event because of the president going to be there and speaking that it was going to be that was going to be not good <laughs> For any, anything. Mm-hmm. But then what he said as far as specifically about teachers and us, um, I mean, I'm going to paraphrase here, that basically we teach our kids to hate the United States. That's mm-hmm. the, the paraphrase uh, uh, of what he said. And that's super – there's always – and we've talked about this on the podcast before. There, when you think that it, you know, something can't actually be uh, – an action that he does can't ever be topped. He just keeps topping it with something else. Um, and this is just obviously not true, not even close to being ever close to being true. Um, the pride that we have as Americans for the United States, for the United States, is pretty huge. And, a, <laughs> and, and the majority of our educators say 99.9999999% mm-hmm. of them have that passion for our country. And one of the reasons why we can't stand some of the things that are happening within our country and some of the things that are hap- that continue to happen and and uh, the injustices for many people in the, in the United States, the reasons why we are destroying uh, monuments and so on and so forth 
is because we care so much about the country. If we didn't mm-hmm, care, mm-hmm. we would just be complicit, you know, to anything that was just going on. Um, do we teach our kids the facts? Yes. Do we make them lean in one direction? We've had this conversation before. And I always tell you, there's, there is no left-wing agenda that happens in schools. In fact, teachers, for the most part, really do a try to stay out as much as possible out of politics in their Some classroom. Some teachers have to. Yes. And, and, and then let me describe kind of what I'm trying to say here is, is so much so that it's maybe a little bit exaggerated, you know, mm. that they really don't want to converse in it. I, I had a really good friend that passed away um, and his a good friend that was a, a history teacher and his best skill was basically playing devil's advocate. So it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't to one side or the other. What he wanted to do is make sure that kids were f- learning to formulate their own arguments not the media's arguments, Sounds not like things I'd that like they found in things, not the things that they found uh, that they heard from their parents. Yeah. He's, he was saying the first step towards becoming a, an adult, and you are about to be an adult, is to start formulating your opinions and, and backing them up with, with some facts. And so he always played devil's advocate. It didn't matter left, right, whatever might be on the topic, and it didn't matter which class, and the kids – in the end, left the classes. It always came back to him and said, you know, what? I learned so much about that. And that's actually a lot of our teachers do that is they want our kids to engage in the conversations and be, and continue to want to seek out uh, knowledge, obviously, but to seek out and, and, and learn what is it that they truly believe and why is it that they believe that. So they are always not just hard uh, – and, and like you always describe too, Mike. I like that you say this too. You – are willing to to have an argument and and you love the discourse of that, but you are always willing to accept too that there's a possibility that someone could change your mind on something mm-hmm. and it has happened and you know mm-hmm. that and that's actually something great that we can all continue to learn throughout our entire lives and that we don't just stay on this one point. If I was the same person when I was sixteen or seventeen that I am now as uh, mid forties, that's that would be really sad <laughs> that it's I like haven't a, grown. You know, as far as my yeah. opinion, my ideology, whatever it might be, and that's really what we want as educators. We want our kids to have a passion for learning, to yeah. seek out the truth, and whatever side you end up falling on, if it holds true for you because you've you've researched the facts and you know it is, then then good for you and you've actually done your thing. But if you're falling just complicit and you're just falling for someone's whatever rhetoric, you know, and you're just falling, you know, following someone just because of you feel a, a, a hate, a, a, a disgust for something, you know, whatever it might be. And that's too often what our president currently does is he, he stokes hate and fury in people and uses that to basically, as people say, to divide us and then to also embolden people to do things that are just gross and disgusting. So this is one of those things that it doesn't surprise me, but it's so sad that it happened and on the 4th of July to do that. It's just like, wow, thank you. <laughs> it's, it seems like the one night where you would think that you could like bring people together. Yes, and as all Americans, yes. and like under and thank Mount Rushmore, your, all of be, your teachers, 
for doing all of the things that they have done and are right. will, are going to be willing to do this fall. You know, Just went them. through three months of hell and anticipated to go through another seven, eight months of it in the fall um, where they're, you know, I, I was saying to my wife yesterday that I think by the election in November, like a quarter million Americans are going to die. I mean, there will be educators whose family members are dead from yes. coronavirus. And it's like this president can't even say thank you no. to them. Um, you know, what kind of leader is that Ugh. is is really all that I, I I mean, it's not all I have to say, but, but we could just we have two guests on the podcast this week. So we got to keep we got to keep this keep train. We got to keep this train rolling. <laughs> so, yes. and, you know, speaking of coming back in the fall. Yes. Um, Jennifer Gonzalez, who we've never had on the podcast yet. Um, yeah, we need her on and, the podcast. And, and should. I've spoken to her about coming on, but um, the the speaking of getting keeping trains rolling, the Jennifer Gonzalez train rolls yes. uh, very quickly. <laughs> and so um, getting her to, to, to come on is, is tough. But, yes. man, did she ever write a, a, a hell of a blog post about, um, you know, online learning and online teaching and um, something that everyone should read probably when going back in September. Yes. And she interviewed a uh, another educator, a coordinator of instructional technology. Her name is Melanie Kitchen. Mm-hmm. And this blog post, and I'm not even doing hyperbole. I, I do some hyperbole. <laughs> People know. <laughs> I, I exaggerate some things sometimes. But this is truly one of those things that every teacher, especially every instructional leader, but every teacher out there and every administrator not only needs to read – but then needs to analyze what are the implications and how do we make um, these types of differences as far as different ways of being able to effectively teach online versus face-to-face. And how do we make them happen within our specific district? Um, it basically goes down the line. A lot of these things we've actually talked about, which makes me super happy, not only in our district, but we, mm. we me and you have had these conversations on here on the podcast and with some of our guests Starting with things like uh, community building before community building, checking in, social emotional learning with our students, uh, checking in with them and building those relationships before moving on to content. You know, it's kind of one of the first things that they talk about. And then one of the next things, Mike, that made me super happy is that's the second kind of aspect there. They said, don't forget about your teachers too. You need to make sure that you check in with them, make sure yeah. they are good. And when we were talking um, to uh, Mandy, Freilich. Um, and we were and we were having the discussion like how do we keep our educators um, healthy in, mm-hmm. in, in as far as emotionally healthy um, and we've had these conversations on the podcast and we've had them within our school district but this is like a point by point analysis of things that we need to do talking about communicating effectively um, with our students of course but then again with connecting with our parents and then there's some things on instructional design talking about why we need to collaborate even more now than we ever have how important that is we talk about it as far as in social media the connections that we make as far as in twitter 
making those uh, effective connections within our school schools and school districts, and then furthermore in the states that we live in, and then globally making those connections to make us more effective educators. And then the one part that I want to make sure that I, that I uh, leave here with is using that time that you do have face-to-face mm-hmm. interactions with your students and um, – uh, who are your the the very uh, amazing um, uh, husband and wife team? They talk about this all the time. The husband and wife team that uh, Joe and Kristen. Yes, What's there's only name? two. The, there's the only two. The the OGs are Steve yes. and Kathy. They, no, no. And then there's about, Joe and Kristen. The, yeah, the Merrills. Um, the Merrills. Yeah, the Merrills. We call them. Hi, Merrills. <laughs> yes, Merrills, you're amazing. I, and I should have just busted out your name here. Um, but what the, they are for, and what they describe, and even what's inside of their book, is this concept of if you are gonna have some time with your students, you might as well make that time active learning. And then it describes like, what does that actually mean to have active learning? Well, it gives you some specific examples and other blog posts linked to it of how this, what does this look like in an online format? It is fantastic. You should not only read it, because I mean, reading is great, but we should make sure that we make the connections to how we're going to deliver our professional development is the first thing I'm going to bring to our our, uh, uh, administrators is how do we make this happen at our specific districts? Because it's going to be different for everybody depending upon what your state decides to do this next fall. Um, fantastic read as always. Jennifer Gonzalez, you're amazing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <I'd> say. <laughs> so, I mean, there's lots of great writing out there about what's uh, going to happen next. And, and this we can just add this to the list. Yes. Um, this is this is the guidebook. It's, it's funny to me that uh, I feel like we know these things, these nine yes. points. Uh, it, it, it hits differently when it's written down and when you're reading it and you're letting it kind of sink in. Um, and, and so we strongly advise you all go and actually read it. We'll put the blog post in the show notes. It'll go on the episode blog post as well. Um, so you'll get uh, a number of chances uh, f- to see it from us. Um, and hopefully you take advantage of it because I think that there's a lot to, to learn there. Um, we have two great interviews Woo! coming up. So when we come back, you're going to hear an interview I did with Jennifer Casatod. And right after that, our interview with Michael Hernandez. So stay with us. GoGuardian helps thousands of K-12 school districts maximize the learning potential of over 8 million students. GoGuardian's products enable productive and safe digital learning by helping educators identify learning patterns, protect students from harmful and distracting content, and support mental health. To support schools during their distance learning transition, GoGuardian is offering free access to their entire product suite until the end of the school year. To learn more about GoGuardian and download their free resources about distance learning, visit their Distance Learning Resource Center at GoGuardian.com slash distance learning. Welcome to another episode of On Education Presents. Our guest is a teacher librarian, a speaker and presenter, and the author of Social Media, Moving Students from Digital Citizenship to Digital Leadership. Welcome to the podcast from just 30 minutes or so down the road from me. Jennifer Cassatod. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for having me. Super excited uh, for you to be here with us. The school year just wrapped up in Ontario. Um, this is the first week off for everyone in Ontario. Um, how have the last 
three or four months been for you? I'm curious what your teaching looked like. So absolutely, though, I'm a glutton for punishment and I'm teaching summer school. So I'm <laughs> quickly trying to prepare for that, which starts on Thursday. Um, but here as a teacher librarian, uh, slightly different in terms of um, the way I worked to support teachers. For the most part, my job is to co-plan, co-teach and co-assess with teachers. And that was mostly physically in my library classroom. And so the shift to online was interesting because I didn't know what it would look like. But thankfully, um, I was able to forge really positive relationships with my teachers. And so I was able to continue much of the work that we had started during the school year. So with uh, a couple of my classes, we were working on TED Talks. And so I was able to assume that co-teaching, co-planning and co-assessing of the TED Talks were in TED Ed clubs. One of my teachers continued to work on podcasting um, along with me. And so, so that was great. And that's what that aspect looked like. But I found myself as a re the resource person in my building, quote unquote, um, also really trying to help support teachers who weren't quite as far um, as proficient, let's put it that way, with technology tools who were now forced to choose an sure. LMS or choose a way to communicate with kids mm -hmm. who were now forced to uh, meet synchronously with our kids. Our school board did something a little different than some other people, I think, in that we had created a schedule, elementary school students uh, connected with their teachers in the mornings secondary school teachers connected with their classes at 1 p.m in the afternoon um, period one on monday period two on tuesday period three on wednesday period four on thursday with friday as a catch-up day in addition to that what I, as a teacher librarian, I was able to create a resource uh, for teachers at my school, subject specific, um, which gave them access to textbooks, things that, again, were so unique to COVID times. Um, I created video tutorials. I helped support teachers as they connected. Teachers were really interested in copyright, uh, more so than they ever had been before. Um, mm. So that was really my role to support teachers. And I was just so amazed amazed by them, you know, um, teachers who had never, ever connected on a Google Meet before. You know, for me, it, you know, I, I did that all the time. Um, but sure. some of these teachers, they were incredible troopers and learned. So one teacher said to me, my goodness, Jennifer, like I learned more in these past three months than I probably have in six years, you know, when it comes to technology. So um, I was grateful to be a support and it really, really brought home the fact that, you know, I don't know what those schools were doing who didn't have a resource person like me, you know, a, right. a teacher librarian in the school. So there's two things that are interesting to pull out there. The, the first one that comes to mind is um, we have a lot of, I mean, most of our listeners are, are American. And, and so it's, it's fun. Sometimes I get to educate our American listeners on, you know, the Canadian education system and Ontario education system, which is always uh, really great. And, um, most teacher librarians in Canada are also like the main technology teacher. And in most schools in Ontario, the only computers that are like stationary are in the library um, in a lot of cases anyways. I mean, there are carts and stuff now, but um, the 
teacher librarian ends up being, in a lot of cases, the primary source of coding education, for example, robotics in the classroom. This is all stuff that you do, I know. Talk a little bit more to me about, you know, how much effort you had to put into assisting teachers with that that piece of them learning and wrapping their head around all of the change and all of the new software and tools, um, Blackboard and, and, um, and or Brightspace that they had to learn, right? Tons of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I found, um, you know, people are like, online, this is awesome. I probably worked harder. <laughs> and, you know, the lines, <laughs> the lines between being at work and not being at work were so blurred, right? Um, yeah, because yeah. when you had a teacher in distress, who's like, my kids are trying to upload this, and it's not working, or I want to create a video, but this, you know, how do I do this? Or I, you know, I'm a math teacher, and what, how could I use a whiteboard? And, you know, and there were some, even some digital citizenship pieces, right? Like a teacher who had kids trying to enter their room with, um, you know, inappropriate names. You know, they made up emails. Mm. And so what I have been, you know, harping about for years in terms of digital uh, leadership and create co-constructing norms with kids um, became very, very prevalent in the work that I was doing. And so... Um, yeah, no, absolutely. That was uh, one of the, the areas of focus. I think um, another one was definitely research, right? Because we have these incredible databases um, at our school and we know kids default to Google um, so, so often. But it was nice even to see kids, um, especially I work with students in the extended essay um, program through IB, um, really, really taking a, another look at uh, credible resources and what those look like. So I'm sure, I mean, we've just started the summer, but I suspect all, you, like a lot of teachers, are already thinking about, well, what the hell am I going to do next year? Um, you know, when no one really knows, like it's it's crazy and every place is like totally different. I mean, in, in Nova Scotia and um, the Maritime Provinces, they're, they've opened up almost fully. I mean, there's been no cases of coronavirus in Nova Scotia for some, or in PEI for like 18 weeks or something like that. Um, so, so lots of um, positivity in some places in the country and in other places in the country, it's a bit more of a struggle and then definitely a struggle in the United States. So it's a little bit different everywhere. I'm curious what you think your classroom might look like for you next year. You know, I have no idea. I know that our Minister of Education has uh, said to school boards, you have one of three options. It can be an in-person thing, it can be a hybrid situation, or it can be completely online. And I know my husband, who's an administrator, has been toying with, my goodness, what does that schedule look like? I hmm. think, um, honestly, I'm so heartened by the 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 proficiency that I've seen in terms of teachers and their ability to use digital tools and also their resiliency. And I think at the end of the day, no matter what it looks like, I think because we have no idea, like it literally can be anything. But I think that our attitude um, towards what that looks like needs to change. And I think what we need to really focus on is 
and it's it's the subject of one of my blog posts like when we look at is it synchronous is it asynchronous the question we have to ask ourselves is how can we best ensure that we develop relationships with our kids online um, or in person like relationships are at the heart of this and then how can we support different learners in different ways, you know, whether that, you know, for the first time, some of my teachers have discovered hyperdocs, right? Or, you know, the, the advantages to having a video in addition to your in-person instruction so that kids mm -hmm. who need it could go back and rewind. So I would say, no matter what it looks like, being able to pick from some of the really successful practices um, that we learned or engaged in this past year. Um, some of them need to be thrown away, but others of them could really help build and sustain community, um, gap closing and relationships. The last four to five years have been crazy, but it's like 2020 is like the boss fight of crazy years or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's exceeded all expectations of of craziness. Um, I, I said to Jed Dearyberry on last week's podcast that, um, you know, if one crisis wasn't enough, we are definitely dealing with plural crises at the moment. Um, you know, between um, the pandemic and there's definitely a social reckoning occurring in the United States and also in Canada um around black lives matter and 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 police brutality and then there's an election coming up in the united states and listen if you thought the 2016 election was crazy i mean strap in friends uh because we're about to get nuts and i have thought about you so often and the work that you do and and what you teach and talk about I think about it all the time because it's like, how in the world are we going to, I don't want to use, my first word was protect, but I, I feel like we also just need to inform and educate our kids about what it means to live in a world that is this nuts and this divisive and so like split among along like partisan lines and you know now it's like wearing a mask is something that is like you know you're right if you don't wear masks because you believe in freedom and left if you wear masks just because you're, you're trying not to die or whatever um this has got to be the most important time in our lives for students to understand life online right Absolutely. And so it's so interesting that you say that. I mean, um, my friend Mandy Froelich said the other day, like social media was way before its time. And I think people right now are ready for this message. Um, because one yeah. of the things I'd been, I've been advocating for for many, many years is the extent to which technology and especially social media connects us to other people and how important it is for us to model um, leadership, right? And what that looks like online. We need that now more than 
than ever. Um, it also, I mean, certainly one of the things that I've spoken about for many, many years is the fact that social media can either create a bubble for you or it can interrupt your narrative with an alternative perspective, right? And so, you know, I'm, I'm looking at my own social media feed to, to wonder about whether or not um, I'm hearing from the same people, from the same background as me, from the same color as me, or whether or not I truly have diverse voices in my social media feed. And I think that's an important conversation to have. It also um, right now is, you know, I talk a lot about critical literacy um, in social media and, and certainly in, in my work every day as a teacher librarian, I'm working on something like that for summer school right now. This idea of whose voice is missing, um, who has the power, um, what is that, what does that omission of that voice mean to the message? And certainly media literacy, right? Um, you know, that liter that media is a construct and that, you know, there's a purpose and an audience and it has special interests. And so unpacking what those interests are, like every time you see something online, you need to ask yourself lots of critical questions. Um, and we're not doing that enough. And we're definitely not uh, modeling. Some of the research I did in my own master's for my own master's thesis um, was the extent to which modeling is so, so important um, when you, mm -hmm. you know, and, and some of the all of the positive effects that I was able to see um, through the um, global ed student chat, which is what I took a deep dive into, showed that when we show kids something different, they actually do like it, when they experience something different, they're actually um, their behaviors change. And so we mm -hmm. really, really, really need to um, focus on those conversations and those lessons in our classes. I always wonder, you know, I was just talking to my husband about that this morning, like we have so many incredible opportunities in our language arts and our English classes in that media strand, right? That is part of what every student um, needs to know and understand and be able to do by the end of whatever. And uh, I don't feel like we tackle these questions enough. We continue to do the same old things that we always have for media. And we definitely, definitely need to change that because the this is a different world into which these students are graduating. So in that whole vein of partisanship in particular, it can become tricky just to even address the nature of social media um, as an educator and appear partisan, appear like you're trying to influence your students one way or the other. Um, and I imagine that there are a lot of educators out there, especially our American friends, who are trying to tackle in their heads, how they're going to inform their students and talk to their students about fake news. And that, you know, they have a president that is the paragon of fake news, um, yet not appear to be like pushing their kids to be anti-Trump or anything like that, you know, in the fear of getting in trouble uh, with their district or with their supervisors. I'm wondering if you've spent any time thinking about how teachers can actually model this for their students in their classes um, or discuss it with their students in their classes, especially under that weight of being afraid. 
For sure. So um, one of the things that I, I, I totally agree, I think we have to acknowledge that um, there are some difficult lines that we can um, engage in as teachers and we have to acknowledge that we would have a bias and I think it's important for kids to know that everyone has a bias right that you you come at Mm. everything based on your own experiences and kids need to know that those are the essential conversations that we need to have Um, I think that the the way the the way I've always uh, approached it it's the way I have approached it in social media. My upcoming book, uh, Raising Digital Leaders, which is for parents, also addresses this from a parent perspective. But when you take a look at the media triangle, right, and you look at the fundamental concepts of media, and these were true when I started teaching like 20, what was it, 24 years ago? My goodness, I'm old. But that media constructs reality, um, that audiences negotiate meaning, that media has economic implications, that they can communicate value messages, that the form and content are related, and that every uh, media platform has its own forms and conventions. When you look at the, the media triangle, you can apply that to a Facebook post, to a blog post, to a newspaper article, to a Twitter post, to a snap, to a TikTok, right? No matter what mm-hmm. the, the medium, you could take those same questions and have kids answer those questions for themselves. And the more they begin to unpack media as a construct in this way and ask questions of what they're seeing, the better able they will be to be able to understand some of those nuances. Is that always going to be perfect? No, but I want my students to be skeptical of everything that they see. I want them to bring those questions I want my kids to do that, right? I want them to bring those questions to everything that they are seeing. And the more that yeah. we do that, I think the more, A, the more effectively we can construct media, but also um, at the more we consume, the more we understand what it is that we're consuming. Jennifer, how can folks learn more about your work, connect with you on social media, Um buy this great book that everybody should definitely read now. If they weren't reading it before, I mean, man, oh, man, um, open that up and and learn how to talk to your students about social media because we're entering the golden age of necessity for this, um, for sure. How can people reach out and connect with you? Absolutely. So I blog at jcasata.com. I try to blog every Sunday. Um, And that's where you can also connect with me on social uh, media. So on Instagram, I'm at jcasatod, as well as Twitter at jcasatod. I have a Facebook page for social media. And then if you go to jcasatod.com, you'll learn more about my upcoming book, Raising Digital Leaders for Parents, which is coming out this summer, published by Dave Burgess Consulting, and my children's book, which I've co-authored with Lee Castle, Aubrey Bright, um, Stories That Connect Us, which which takes that same idea of connection through technology, but it's through the lens of a young girl and her uh, relationship with her grandmother and her friends. Um, And I'm excited that that's coming out through EduMatch in the summer as well. So you can find out more about both of those projects at jcasatod.com. Awesome. And we'll put all of those links in the show notes for folks as well. Uh, Jennifer Casatod, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Have an amazing day.
Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Our guest this week is an educator, author, and consultant. He is the host of the Change the Narrative podcast. And if you're building a list of great educators in the world of content creation, his name is definitely on this very short list. Welcome to the podcast, Michael Hernandez. Hey, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Um, Michael, I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our audience. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, why it's important, and uh, and what brought you to us here today. Oh, gosh. Um, well, my day job is that I'm a high school teacher in the Los Angeles area. I teach broadcast journalism, film production, and photography. So I just finished my 21st year teaching those classes, and uh, it's been really great. It, it's always changing. It's always new. So uh, it keeps me on my toes. And I guess what I really like most about teaching those classes, I mean, there's a lot of things, <laughs> um, is that the students get to create work that matters to the world, to people outside of the classroom. And I feel like, especially now that we're on pandemic and everyone's on remote learning, a lot of the kids are wondering, like, what's the point of all this? What are we here to do? And so it's really great that, that uh, we can facilitate that for the kids. Um, and, you know, just integrating creativity into their, their daily routine because they don't have that anywhere else. It's just really difficult to find, you know, those creative skills and the creative mindset being developed in other courses because of the demands of, you know, standardized tests and, you know, rushing through all this content that the teachers have to do. So it's great to be able to provide that respite um, for them as well. So, um, so that's what I do during the day. I love it a lot. The kids are fantastic and ridiculous and keep me... On my toes, I learn a lot from them too, which is, I guess, the, maybe the most fun part of the job, I think. Um, and then I do a little bit of consulting on the side. You know, I do some writing and work for some tech companies and speak at conferences like South by Southwest and ISTE. And again, that's really great for me because I get to network and meet really creative folks like yourself that inspire me. And, um, you know, I get to keep learning too. So that's a lot of fun. So I guess that's kind of my job in a nutshell. Nice. That's awesome. I was thinking in, in Ontario, um, Canada, where I am, there's actually not many high schools anymore that have like a broadcast journalism or like even like yearbook like class, like which used to be a thing when I was growing up. I don't know if that's showing my age or not, but um, or things like um, like cinematography and photography. Those classes don't really even exist in a lot of high schools anymore. It must feel special that you are still able to do this after all this time. And then again, an age of standardized tests and, and stuff like that. Yeah, it, it is really rare. And so it kind of forced me to reach out to colleagues globally um, that are in different places of the world, uh, in the US, Canada, Australia, Germany, like all these different places, um, which I, th I think is really, we should all be doing that. Um, mm -hmm. But as far as like these skills and these mindsets, I think it's a double edged sword because it's not tested. And when something's not tested, yeah, the schools aren't mm -hmm. going to put any mm -hmm. uh, money or effort into backing those up. Um, but the advantage to that is that it's not tested. And so mm -hmm. we can do whatever we want um, and pivot and change and adapt on a dime. Like, I'll just change curriculum, like, that day. Like, I'll hear a news report. Like, I mean, you know, like, the last several months, it's like something new happens every single day. And sure. we need to be able to be nimble with our curriculum and make our lessons, our projects, the experiences for the kids relevant to their lives right now. And so I think 
you know, the standardized tests and textbook adoption process takes years, if not decades, to change. And that just mm-hmm. makes us as teachers um, irrelevant. Um, so that's, I guess, what I really like and think is so important about this. I know we have these conversations about media literacy and what that means. And uh, some people default to this term, digital native, like the kids know how to use this. They don't. That's mm-hmm. just an excuse for us to not have to deal with it. Um, and so that means being able to analyze images, create content, and understand how these messages are crafted um, and how they can fool us. Um, and it's obviously in this country, in the United States, and also in other places of the world, really, really important right now because that's how we get our information about the world, how to make choices about our lives. Like, do I believe in science? Do I believe in COVID? Should I wear a mask? You know, <laughs> who should I vote for? Yeah. Right. All of these really fundamental questions and fundamental issues that underlie society and why we're not helping kids to become literate is a huge question that I have. And literacy means digital literacy and it means visual literacy and it means filmmaking and it means social media authoring and all of these things. So, um, you know, I, I'm probably preaching to the choir, but <laughs> um, I just I just wish that all of those skills could be integrated into other courses. It doesn't necessarily have to be a standalone film class Yeah, or, like students don't see themselves as like a journalist. I'm not going to do that in you know, my life, but the journalistic mindset of research and going to primary sources and questioning everything and verifying with observation. I mean, it's like science, you know? And so I think um, more teachers should be doing this, integrating it into all of their subject areas, social studies, yeah, yeah. English language arts, you know, everything. Um, there's no reason that we can't because you can do everything on your iPhone right now anyway. Yeah, totally. So I've been thinking about this a lot lately, mostly because like it intersects with my job. I'm a creative person just like you and Glenn is um, as well. And doing a lot of content creation, I'm doing a lot of streaming and obviously uh, podcasting and um, and a bunch of other things. And I'm thinking about also all of these people that I've seen really emerge over the last few months in this space of content creation and conflicted about kind of creativity in this age of crisis. I mean, uh, our last podcast episode, um, we spoke to Jed Deeryberry, who is um, a very creative and, um, you know, has written a book about it, in fact. And um, I said, you know, it's plural now. We have multiple crises going on all around us. Basically, we're surrounded by them. Yet you have certain maybe um, content creators that are flourishing in this time and doing incredible work. And I'm curious about reconciling, I guess, those two kind of pieces and just what you think about what it means to be creative right now and what it means to maybe be creative in the midst of, you know, everything that's going on around us right now, which is absolutely insane and about to get crazier with an American election coming up. Yeah, I think there's a couple different questions in that question. That's the way Um, I do it, man. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, so first of all, what is creativity? Um, Which I believe is not necessarily art. Um, It's more of a mindset of being able to uh, pivot, uh, being able to adapt, um, to question, to iterate and improvise. That's what creativity is to me. Um, And it's not 
there's a sort of this myth that you're sort of born a creative person. And if you're not born a creative person, then it's just forget it. Um, but I don't think so. I think that's more of like, yes, there are so many traits that someone might have, but I think, uh, there are skills and mindsets that can be developed and honed, um, that everybody needs. So when you think about <laughs> people are talking about creative solutions to COVID or creative solutions to racism or creative solutions to like remote learning, what does that mean? And they don't mean we're going to sit around painting, right? It means that we're going to try to develop something new that we didn't have before, um, to solve a problem that's in front of us with the tools that we have available to us. And that's what creativity is. Um, and so your second part of that question is, how do we use that now? Well, clearly we've got problems to solve, right? Um, mm. But also the other side of that, which is the art side. And so maybe your question is more philosophical. You know, like we saw lots of questions after the Holocaust of like, how can we create art after the Holocaust or something like 9-11 or something like that? when there's tragedy in the world and people are suffering and things like that. And, um, I think it's really important to do it. And what I noticed with my students as we were going through, you know, lockdown, as we were going through quarantine, they were teenagers unable to be teenagers. They couldn't hang out with their friends. You know, the routine is thrown off. Everything has changed and they were really struggling and they really were hungry for art. They were hungry to do photography and filmmaking because it was something that you had control over. Mm. And when life is out of control, you need to, I think you need to make stuff. Like I learned to bake bread. I'm like the cliche, right? <laughs> I've got <laughs> sourdough bread like right now in my kitchen, like festering, like feeding it, whatever. Um, and, but it gives you like a sense of control. So there's a consistency to it, but also I think you get to process all of those emotional and psychological issues that you have, whether it's like just in your own head or with your family or struggling with school or your health. Um, you know, I, I really think that we can work out our issues by making things and creating. Um, it's, it's not, I mean, in some ways it can be a selfish act because just like you would, I don't know, do anything on your own, like write a letter or something like that. But I think at the same time, it can be a very, um, constructive and helpful activity because you don't make art to throw in a drawer. You make it to show someone. And when you show people, like I had my students do these series of, of eBooks, um, inspired by a New York times series, um, quarantine life, you know? And so they would document their lives, mm. uh, and what was around them and what they were doing during the day. And so when they shared those with each other, they got to see, and there was a sense of commonality of mm. shared purpose of shared suffering, you know, so to, to feel not alone in the world, I think is maybe one of the reasons we create art. And I think, you know, we see that happening again right now because we're alone. We can't go to school. We can't go to bars and restaurants. You can't see your family. Um, and so it, it functions in all of those ways, um, both on a technical skill level kind of thing <clears throat> and also on a social emotional wellness level which everyone is is starting to really focus on right now so i think it's really important so michael i was just thinking you're a high school instructor and i I've, I've worked with high school teachers either as a high school teacher or with high school teachers now as an instructional coach and one of the things that i have seen throughout my entire career even until now is the continual lack of the interest in in funding arts, number one, as far as within schools and school districts and how little uh, focus it actually gets as far as budgetary uh, focus. 
But then something else now that's actually come into play, this hyper-focus on reading and math scores, as you had described earlier, as far as testing, has led us down this path of basically regurgitating information. And then now during this crisis time where we have to do this kind of online teaching, we have found out that the regurgitation of information is really not, we really don't want that. And then so how are we going to, for example, assess students, you know, in, in a summative way on, on anything that we are describing? And one of the, I guess, positive aspects as far as this crisis, one of the things we could take away from it is what you were describing. And, and, and maybe you can tell us more about this is that ability for students to go ahead and create something and tell a story to describe what they've actually learned versus just spitting out information on a you know multiple choice exam and how really we can learn so much from our art teachers our our art instructors in in the variety of the different arts whether it be music or art or in, in the case of your your specifics what can we take away from all of that you know as far as all of us that are just teaching you know the the content the core oh my gosh i was just reading this article in the atlantic the other day um and it was talking about uh, math, we need to move away from this idea of making kids calculate to mm-hmm. uh, a mindset of like, how are we going to use this information? So instead of focusing on the skills of solving equations, because that's automated, you have computers that can do that yes. and much faster. So instead of focusing on those types of rote skills that are easily automated, um, instead, let's focus our energy on things that we can do with that uh, information. And so, again, it's this whole thing that I guess schools have gotten into where it's, it's difficult to measure and assess kids um, if it's messy and it's, you know, not a number. And so your administrator is talking about data, you know, yes. we need data, <laughs> like, data meetings, <laughs> like let's have the data on you. <laughs> what does that mean? Mm-hmm. How good of an administrator are you? What's the data? Right. Um, and so <clears throat> I, I really think that. I've thought this for a while is you have to shift away from, again, the rote memorization and you have to move towards like the content isn't the central piece. It's like what you are able to do with that information. How are you able to constructively impact the world, you know, in positive ways. And, uh, and I think that's where a lot of teachers were struggling on remote learning, Mm -hmm. honestly, is they're used to being the center of the room and the font of information. Like I'm going to still at my school. I'm in Southern California, U.S., like a well-resourced school. Teachers are still lecturing. You know, it's like, what are you doing? Like, or they would go on Zoom and they just like filibuster the kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they just like lecture for hours. It's like, what are you doing? Like, you can record that. Terrible. They can consume it whenever they need to. What's best for them? Rewind it. Play it again. Listen to it again. Mm-hmm. Oh, now I get it. Right. And instead, you can use your valuable, magical face-to-face time to have conversations, to collaborate, and to do something productive with that. And I think that's, you know, I think we all want that. Like, think of us as teachers. We, we go to professional development or faculty meeting where it's like looking at our phones because this is a waste of time, <laughs> yes. right? Like, give me something that I can do that's going to be productive. And for most of us, that means going back to our classrooms and doing something cool, right? Um, yes. But again, sort of this existential piece that I, I really believe in. I wrote a, a Medium article a few years ago when Donald Trump got elected. And it was like, you know, part of, I think, the mindset that leads to, um, 
what's the right not too political way to phrase this like we you have <laughs> dictatorial tendencies uh in leadership it, it, it can stem from this mindset that we've developed in the classroom which is mm. you know very prison like you know it's like you, we'll, we'll tell you when you're going to eat. We're going to tell you when you can go to the bathroom. You're going to sit in that chair for an hour. The bell will ring and you'll move to the next cell. Yeah. And if you get the answer wrong, you're going to get punished. Right. And then yes. we wonder where we have classroom management issues. Like where are kids distracted on the phones? Well, are you distracted on your phone in the faculty meeting? <laughs> like, <laughs> Often. And again, the question of like relevance um, and we're, and teachers are thrust into that right now. It's like, we're questioning our relevance and you can go one of two ways. You can either like freak out and go, Oh my God, I'm outsourced because the kids are on Khan Academy and they can find the videos of how to solve the math equations on YouTube. Right. And you can go, I have no reason, no purpose as a professional, or you can say, you can embrace that and go, okay, right on. Somebody else is handling that for me or in my department, we've developed these cool videos to offload all of that direct instruction. And now we get to the fun stuff, which is yes. thinking and problem solving, you know, and coming up with solutions to problems in our real world. And I don't know about you, but I can't stand like grading essay after essay or like, you know, I don't know, like standardized tests. That's not fun for anybody, not even the teachers. Yeah. Like. We've lost the joy in education because we've turned it into numbers and data. And there's so many kids that we're forced to, to see every day and every year that it makes it really difficult to do that meaningful face-to-face -face, interpersonal kind of coaching that we should be doing as teachers um, to help them build these projects. Um, so it's not teachers' faults per se. I think it's everyone's fault. I think it's System. you know parents yeah. who feed into that. Like we got to get my kids into the best college, so I got to get yes. these like AP scores up, and you know then the money comes that way, and then you have the education industrial complex that won't let that system fail. Right? Exactly. Um, it's too big to fail, and you know then the kids wonder like, what am I do? What do I do now? I'm working for a grade, and now I don't work for a grade, so. What am I doing? What's you my know? purpose? Yes. I'm rambling now, but stop. No, no it's it. great. We love That's it. That's exactly what we're thinking of. Um, so multiple things going on right now, an election coming up, um, you know, George Floyd and definitely a reckoning as far as race goes in America, um, a global health pandemic. Um, and uh, you and Glenn and I, frankly, and uh, a bunch of other people that we know and respect all have these like fairly large platforms um, by which to communicate with educators and speak our minds and share what we're feeling, um, you know, uh, as a as a group where, you know, so on education has a we, we have a team of folks that we that we work with that we we love and you know we kind of worked together on putting out a statement it was written under my name but i definitely got insight into it and we we have these kind of ideas on how we move forward as a team during this time and and um using our platform for you know change and to help change um, by doing some specific things. And I'm wondering if you've thought about your platform. Um, I, you know, watch what you tweet all the time. I respect you uh, uh, quite a bit. And, um, you know, I think that you have a, a great opportunity, just like I think we do, to, to have our voices heard um, 
and I'm and I'm curious if you've spent some time thinking about what you're going to do um, in light of multiple crises that are surrounding us with this great platform that you have. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I mean, personally, I try to use my platform just to share ideas that I think would be useful um, to other people um, and or inspiring or thought provoking and challenging. Um, maybe it's just my personality. Um, I'm not so much like a high five, like social media high five kind of person, um, which you know has its place. But um, I feel like a lot of educators are kind of not sure what to do or say, um, and, and rightly so. You know, I've got a lot of you know white friends who are educators and have huge platforms, much bigger than mine, and um, haven't really said much. And and I reached out to them and. They're like, I don't, I don't know if that's my place. I don't think that I have like something to say um, that's going to be relevant. And I think in some ways that's good because there are clearly a lot of voices, information and facts that we haven't heard. Um, so, so there's that piece to it. Um, and then the other part to it is I think that everybody is obligated to stand up and do something that they know is right. And I think a lot of times, whether you have a so-called platform or not, whether your platform is just your classroom, you know, or it's your school or your family, um, your friends, your friend network, um, to stand up and say, you know, that's not right. <laughs> or I don't know what to do, but I know something has to happen. Who's with me. Let's figure this out. Um, and, I think there's so many people, I get the feeling maybe, maybe I'm making assumptions, but I get the feeling that a lot of times people are just afraid mm -hmm. to, well, of course, afraid to rock the apple cart, you know, or offend somebody. And, you know, when Donald Trump was being elected, it is the same thing. It's like, well, I don't want to have a political conversation because I don't want to piss anybody off. And it's like, why are you so <laughs> fragile that you can't have an intellectual conversation about facts? Mm -hmm. aren't, aren't we educators? Mm -hmm. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Are yeah. we supposed to talk about facts, like how to find verifiable, reliable facts and make decisions based on fact? You know, whether you're analyzing yes. literature or studying history or doing science or creating art, you know, that's our job. And so we often hear this too. And, and I hear this at my school, you know, don't be political. Like you're not supposed to be political in the classroom. Well, kids are looking to you for advice and direction because they're, they're wondering, they need it. They hear different things from their friends or from their parents that may or may not be accurate. Um, and, uh, you know, it, I think this idea of politicizing things, you can, you could definitely be like, you know, over the top, but I think mm -hmm. having a conversation about facts and and making a space that's safe for conversations, uh, respectful, professional conversations is important because not only are, are there the facts that need to be discussed, but also we need to model that behavior um, for our students. So again, it's all these like sort of under the hood, invisible things that we teach every day is like how to have a civil conversation, <laughs> you know, and yes. I don't know that um, a Socratic seminar does that because the loudest person gets heard. And that's exactly the problem right now <laughs> is that the loudest <laughs> no people <laughs> and maybe the loudest people are us, you know, with these megaphones, like, um, how do we bring in these other voices? How do we elevate? How do we highlight? And I think if you don't know what to do, you don't know what to say, ask, 
you know, reach out to people who you haven't talked to, people of color, of other underrepresented groups, um, have them as guests on your show, right? Yes. Or, you know, ask them or quote them on your Twitter account or invite them to be part of your, you know, you have to be careful though, because you don't want to be like, oh, this person we brought in because they're our token black person and they're going to like speak <laughs> yeah. for all black people. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you don't want to do that. But what I mean is like, how can we, um, educate ourselves? Um, yes. So it's so complicated and so tricky. I mean, share the literature that you're reading. Like there's so many suggestions for those kinds of books. And that's what I try to put out on my Twitter account and Instagram account are, um, you know, these great books that are out there that get your mind thinking or resources from, you know, the Southern Poverty Law Center, for example, um, that can really be helpful in your classroom and also with yourself. Um, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but um, no, you are. it's definitely, I think if, if, if everybody just has that mindset that it's okay to, to not be right. And if we try to separate ego from the facts, I think we'll all be a lot better off. Um, and I think it's okay if people don't know what to do or say. It, it's not seen as like, well, you're shirking your responsibility. But at some point, we do need to like call BS on whoever, you know, um, and uh, and make it right. And this is an example. This is kind of ties into what we were just talking about as far as relevance. Is a, a good friend of mine uh, is an art teacher, a really fantastic art teacher in the San Diego area. And she's got this fantastic website. Uh, um, her name is Valerie White. And you can look up her stuff. Um she created resources for monuments because there's all this uh, toppling of monuments of like Confederate soldiers and all of these people that are controversial, like Christopher Columbus and things like that. And so she's like, okay, I got to make my curriculum relevant. Like what is a monument and what makes one monument better than another? And the difference between celebrating a racist and a monument mm. to an event or a happening or something like that. Like we see. Um, so that was a really great way to tie in art into social studies and things that are happening in the contemporary world. So in her own way, she was able to do that and start to address that in her classroom, which I thought was really brilliant. And uh, I'm going to steal that idea. Absolutely. That's fantastic. So Michael, you were just describing, you share resources both on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Can you, if our audience wants to connect with you, can you share your the way to be able to do that? Absolutely. So you can find me on Twitter at Cinehead, C-I-N-E-H-E-A-D. And you can find me on Instagram at changing.the.narrative. Nice. <laughs> Michael Hernandez, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for listening to On Education. My name is Glenn Irvin. My co-host is Mike Washburn. On Education is part of the On Podcast Media Network. You can listen to this show and many others by great educators like Monica Burns, Mike Matera, Tisha Richmond, and many more by visiting onpodcastmedia.com. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website at oneducationpodcast.com. You can tweet us at oneducationpod. Mike is at Mr. Washburn on Twitter. And I can be found on Twitter at Irv Spanish. You can find us on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash oneducationpod. We're also on Instagram at oneducationpod. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. When you leave a rating, it gives our podcast rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. We want to thank our presenting sponsor, Participate, for supporting us. 
Check out participate.com to learn more about them. Thanks as always for listening. Stay awesome and see you soon.